You are listening to inspiring stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary stuff. Welcome to the Doolanders. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Hit it, boys. Nick, welcome back. I've Actually, I've listened to the last few episodes and my Nick just keeps on getting louder <laughs> and more energetic. So I'm just going to go with... Nick, welcome back. Thanks, Blake. It has been a long time since I've seen you. It has been, what's it been? What? Months. It has been months and months and months. Uh, I'm really looking forward to today's episode. Which is episode number? Eight. eight. Uh, and if we had a sponsor, this week's sponsor would deliver us a lifelong supply of... Lycra. <laughs> everyone, everyone likes Lycra, don't they? Uh, I think so. Not everyone likes to admit they like Lycra. Yep. I suppose that's probably true. I, I quite like it if I'm riding a bike, for example. Correct. And see what I've done there? That I, I've tried to throw in something around the theme of today's doer uh, with the sponsor. Who is today's doer? Matthew Keenan. Who is Matthew Keenan? He is the voice of cycling. What are we going to get out of Matty's, uh, Matty's inspiring story? Well, the amazing thing that Matt has done and actually explains in exquisite detail in this interview is a blueprint for how if you, if you have something that you want to do and, you, and there's only one spot available for it and you want to be either the best in the world at something or you want to take a job or anything, he has laid out the blueprint for how you can do it. There's no mystery about anything that he did. He he has laid it all out. These are the steps you need to take in order to take the one thing that you want. It's there. It's all there. There it is. Uh, and the other thing that I love about this is he recognised pretty early on in his career that genetics wasn't going to get him to the pinnacle, to the place that he wanted to go. And he just said, okay, I'm going to do the hard yards. I'm going to do the hard work in order to get there. And let's hear from Matt and hear that story about how he does get there. Enjoy. Hey, Matt. Thank you so much for joining us on the Doolanders. How are you? I'm very well. I'm in lockdown, so I'm happy for some company. Yeah, look, uh, we're a bit the same. Hey, I've got a question for you. Far away. There's a two-rider breakaway, final stage of the Tour de France. It's a sprint finish between a guy by the name of Blake Collins who's maybe a little older, a little heavier, but perhaps a bit smarter, and another guy by the name of Nick Devides who's a little finer, a little younger, but a lot hairier. What happens next? They're charging across the Place de la Concorde. It's Devitus who is on the front. He's all rage and ambition. He can see the finish line up on the Champs-Élysées. The Arc de Triomphe is in the distance. Collins sits the wheel, waits patiently. He's got experience. He's holding. Devitas goes. He's gone early. Collins is coming. It's a photo. Devitas, Collins, it's a photo. 
Debitus takes the win. Oh! He's let out from the corner. He's held on, and Collins hangs his head in shame. Holding oh! <laughs> on for the last kilometre and not pulling his weight at all. Oh, <laughs> I can't believe you've done that to me, Matt. I'm never gonna. I will never ever live that down. Hey, that was beautiful. Thank you so much for. Um, I can't believe you survived. The breakaway never wins on the Champs-Élysées. Well played, both of you. <laughs> yeah, we tried. We tried really hard. And, uh, yeah, we did. Well, I, Nick off. is going to uh, – so Nick is, you know, in lockdown, has been on the bike in the carport, what, every day for the last three months? Yeah, mostly uh, seeing Matt zoom past me. Is that right? <laughs> in the virtual world, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> you'll, be, you'll be playing that uh, in your ears on a day-to-day basis, won't you? Yeah. Hey, Matt, thank you again for joining us. Um, so am I right? Was it your actual crush on a girl at the age of 12 that's actually led you to a, a love of cycling and a, and a dream to pursue um, or a want to, to ride at the Tour de France? Lyndall Fawcett has a lot to answer for. <laughs> Absolutely, it was a crush on Lyndall when I was about 12 years of age. Does Lyndall so know this? Yeah, she does. Absolutely. So she was a family friend. Her mum and my mum played tennis together and her and I were born about a month apart. She had twin sisters younger than us that were born about a month apart from my twin brothers. And our parents were really close friends and we played a bit of tennis together and so on. And I can remember, you know, when you used to have to ask your parents permission to call somebody else, Yeah. I can remember asking my mum permission to ring Lyndall to ask her to play in the mixed doubles with me at the McLeod Club Championships. And I had bigger sweat patches under my arms then than I did on the first day that I ever commentated at the Tour de France. So that was, yeah, yeah, I absolutely had a crush on her. And I did my debutante ball with her. We dated for around about two and a half years. But her her dad was was a keen cyclist. Sadly, he passed away when I was about 12 years of age as well. And seeing photos of him around the house and hearing stories about him and so on really sparked my interest in cycling. And even before he died, I always saw him as a bit of a local sporting hero. He was a guy who played VFA football. He was a premiership player at Preston in the VFA. Okay. Played district cricket as well, I think, for Paran. He won a Melbourne to Yarrawonga as as a cyclist. So he was one of those guys that was just good at everything. And I looked at him as a bit of a local sporting legend and his daughter was really cute as well. And my hormones were kicking in. So, yeah, I went to the bike ride. Think I'll take up cycling. Yeah, absolutely. And I shaved my legs before I had any hair on them because of that. <laughs> Did you you've, – uh, you've shaved early the three hairs that you with. needed to, uh, to take off. Yeah. So you, you found your love of cycling – when did uh, when did you start to compete, and when did the actual you know going um, actually competing and and heading towards that goal of competing at the Tour de France? When did that start? Uh, so Jim was killed on April the first of nineteen eighty seven, and it wasn't actually long after that that I said to mum and dad, "I want to be a bike rider. I want to ride some." bike races and their experience with cycling was that this is really dangerous somebody that was really close to them was killed riding to work so their answer was pretty short and sweet no therefore i had to try and fund it myself so i started mowing lawns at local tennis clubs at old people's homes around the mcleod rosanna area at you know uh, units blocks of units and so on 
Uh, $20 a pop, that sort of thing. And it took me three years to save up enough money to buy a frame. And then I got a wheel set for Christmas. And then I got Jim's hand-me-down equipment, the old you know, Durace equipment from the late 1970s to put on the bike. And then I rode my first race as a 15-year-old. So it took me about three years to get to the point where I actually rode a race. And that was on the track. And I remember going there and I was super anxious going there and I forgot to take a spanner with me to put the front wheel back in the track bike. And then I asked the guy that was handing out the numbers, can you loan me a spanner? I forgot to bring one. No, but that guy over there, his name's Ron Neewand. He'll loan you one. And the Neewand name was really famous in cycling at that time. Gary Neewand was a you know Olympic medalist, Commonwealth Games, gold medalist and so on. So I went over there. Excuse me, Mr. Neewand, can I please borrow a spanner? What's it for? Put my front wheel back in. Right. You want a 14 or a 15? I don't know. <laughs> I want a pair of multi-grips. I don't care. I said, it's just to put my front wheel in. Here you go. You want a 15. What does that say? Sid Chrome? Boomerang, son. Boomerang. Right. So that was my first day of bike race before I rode a race. And then we had three races that night. Scratch race? Last. Points race? Last. Final race of the night, motor pace? Last. But I went home in the car that night as a relatively cocksure 15-year-old thinking, how good is my autobiography going to be from last to winning the Tour de France? <laughs> wow. Had the book title done from day one. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, when well, I finished last in my first three races, Nick. <laughs> what, um, what gave you that confidence as a young fella? Not sure where it came from because it wasn't founded in reality, Blake. Let's be honest. I <laughs> yeah. finished last in my first three <laughs> I know. I was thinking you finished last, last and last, but you still think you're going to win. Yeah, well, I, I figured that the Tour de France is not one on a velodrome. It's out on the road. Whereas I was when I did school athletics and those sorts of things, yeah. I often won the 800 metres or the 1500 metres and – you know, cross country would go through to state championships and be, you know, a top 10 at state championships in cross country. But I would never be much better than the, you know, making a final for the 100 metres. I was, you know, not very quick. Yeah. The gap between my 100 metre speed and my 800 metre speed wasn't much at all. So I figured the road was my thing and, and I would get better when I went out there. And I, and I eventually got up out onto the road and I was better out there. But, yeah, I've not no idea where that confidence came from because – I was one of seven kids. I was the middle child, so I had plenty of people around me, Blake, to knock me down and pull me into line when I did get ahead of myself, and it was on a regular basis. One of seven. Mm. Well, yeah. you you have to be competitive in, in a family one of seven, wouldn't you? Just to get fed. Yeah. Yeah, correct. <laughs> That's exactly right. And I'm, I'm not mathematically the middle child, but I've got twin sisters above me and twin brothers below me, so I am – you know, emotionally the middle child. And as if having six siblings wasn't enough, I had a make-believe friend as well. So there was kind of like eight kids in the family because I had John Boyler to hang out with as well. John so I had a pretty vivid imagination where I was a kid. So maybe that's where the confidence came from still as a 15-year-old to think that I could win the Tour de France, even though I finished last in my first three races. I want to see if uh, that imaginary friend makes a comeback um, later on in life in the commentary box, but we'll, we'll perhaps we'll come to that. Well, if there's a ride on a breakaway, I can't remember his name. He might be John Boyler. <laughs> now, something else happened around the age of 15 or 16, didn't you? You had to convince your dad to do something. 
Yeah, so in 1991, I was 16 years of age and I just started racing. And I was, I'd raced on the track and then I was racing on the road and actually wasn't finishing last in all my races on the road. But SBS got the rights to the Tour de France. Prior to that, I'd spent Saturday afternoons sitting in front of Channel 9 Wild World of Sports recording the little snippets from the CBS coverage of the Tour de France. And I can still quote much of the commentary from John Tesh. You know, when Greg LeMond rides the Tour de France, it blows an ill wind for the rest of the peloton. But then in 91, SBS got the rights to the tour. And our coverage of SBS at that point, it was snowflakes. It was really fuzzy. So I convinced Dad to spend $550 to get us a new aerial, which in 1991 was a fair bit of money. But part of my argument was that of all my siblings, I'm the only one that didn't have braces. So if you're spending $2,000 on Peter and David's teeth, you can spend $5.50 on an aerial for me to watch the Tour de France. And I remind Dad to this day, who's now 83 years of age, that that was the best investment he ever made in my education. Well, And he agrees. <laughs> and so he should. Good on him because yeah, you're right, that, is, that was a lot of cash back then. But, hey, yeah. after your, your first uh, three losses, you were, you were pretty good. Like on the road, weren't you? Like you weren't no slouch. You were very, very good. I was good at a domestic level. So in a, in Australia, I got to a level where I finished top ten at Australian Championships, fifth in what was then equivalent to the National Road Series. Uh, I was in 1996 was the first year they introduced under 23s at the World Championships. Yep. At the Australian Road Championships, I was the first under 23. It wasn't actually an award. So my mates still mock me to this day. They call me, you know, the unofficial first Australian under-23 road champion. Um, so I was okay at a national level. Yeah. And then I raced overseas a couple of seasons and I, I just wasn't good enough. I gave myself every opportunity. I chased that dream. I worked really hard. I was super disciplined. And it wasn't that I didn't try hard enough. It wasn't that I didn't have the opportunities. It had nothing to do with any politics within the sport or anything it was mum and dad's fault they didn't give me the genetic makeup. <laughs> so is that it? Because that, we're talking percent, 1%, less than a percent? Oh, yeah, I'd like to think it was 1%, Nick, but it might have had a zero on the end of that one. I can remember as a 17-year-old riding with Cadell Evans for the first time. Wow. And I'm two years older than Cadell. And this is just by pure chance of geography, of where we, of where we live and being in the same area. And it's no reflection on what level I was as a bike rider to say that I rode with Cadell at that point. And going for a ride with him up King Lake, for those that don't know it, an eight-kilometre climb. And I had a heart rate monitor on at that time, taking my training quite seriously, and, you know, all in up the climb, 186 beats per minute, and I thought I was going okay. And Cadell's not particularly talkative. He certainly wasn't then. But he was riding alongside me, breathing through, breathing through a straw, basically, still chatting away, and I've got – if I had the coronavirus then, the whole neighbourhood would have had it because there was not coming out everywhere as I was full noise trying to get rid of him. And you just knew straight away, he's a guy who's just got it. Made up differently. And yeah, he's just got it. And you, you look at the numbers when he goes into a lab for testing, his VO2 max is through the roof, his lactic acid tolerance is through the roof. Um, and you can train those things to a certain level, but you've got to have the genetics. He had the genetics, but in addition to that, he had the mindset. Because Cadell did all the stuff as well that doesn't require talent. Yeah. 
Perhaps that wa- that's why I just got pipped at the post. My VO2 max wasn't quite high enough. But anyway. Um, that's why Nick got on the Shams at least, eh, Blake? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Thanks, Mum and Dad. <laughs> Matt, was there a moment, do you remember the moment when you went, okay, I'm not made up genetically and I'm going to go do, and do something different? Uh, when I, f- I first went to Europe as a 20-year-old in 1995 and I had these ambitions that I would get over there, I thought the racing would suit me and I'd win a bunch of races and I'd take the next step and go up to the next level and, you know, climb that tree and eventually get there. In the season that I was there, I raced there for about six months, I think it was roughly. My best result was seventh place in a small race in Belgium. And then it starts to dawn on you, and there's a thousand guys at that. There's you know, multiple, more than that, a couple of thousand guys at that level who are just as hungry, if not hungrier than you in some cases, because the Iron Curtain had fallen at that stage. You had a bunch of guys from the former USSR, you know, these Polish guys, Ukrainian guys who were super hungry. You know, they didn't have all study to come back and fall off, fall yeah. back on. Yeah. And at that point, I figured, okay, you might not be quite as good as that. 15-year-old thought he was when he went home after finishing last in those first few races. So I figured I, I better get an education. So as a 21-year-old, I went to what is now Northern TAFE, St. George's Road, Preston, and I did Year 12. I did my VCE as a 21-year-old, which was a really good experience because at that point, I also had a bit of an idea about what I wanted to do beyond cycling. Because the reality slowly sets in that, you know, maybe you're not as, as good as you think you are. And it was a really good experience doing year 12 as a 21-year-old. The cohort of kids that I did year 12 with weren't actually, many of them weren't many weren't kids. A lot of them were actually young women who fell pregnant when they were at high school, that didn't finish high school, that then came back when they were 19, 20 or so, when their kids were now three or four years of age and wanted to finish school to give themselves and their young kid a better chance in life. So from a relatively privileged upbringing that I came with, to see these young women fighting for their own kids, where I was, you know, leading a pretty selfish lifestyle trying to be a bike rider, that was quite eye-opening. And I remember this other woman who was, she was, um, she'd migrated from Spain. She was in her late 70s and her husband had passed away. And she figured, I just want to prove to myself that I can complete year 12 in this country that I've migrated to in my second language. And she was a great inspiration to everyone. She was just awesome. So that was a great experience for me to do year 12 under those circumstances. And because, you know, mum and dad had already funded me to do year 12 once, I had to pay for my own books. And it's amazing how many more words in those books you read when you've paid for the books by comparison to when mum and dad have paid for the books? What an eclectic bunch of students you were uh, back at school with. Yeah. yeah. It, was, it was really good. Yeah, yeah. And there was a, a lot of them were from relatively low socioeconomic backgrounds yeah. as well, Yeah, uh, which, was a, which was a really good experience. And then through that period, I kept chasing the cycling dream. And I set myself a bunch of targets in Australia, had to achieve X, Y, and Z to justify going overseas again. And that was a year where I finished, you know, top 10 at the national championships and so on, won a couple of national level races. And then I got on to a small team in France, top end amateur team uh, in France. And I went there as a 22-year-old and figured, okay, for you to keep chasing this dream, you have to win a minimum of four races. 
I won two races and I had a second place finish, a couple of third place finishes, but I didn't hit my target. So I said, okay, back to reality, dreams over, go to university, get a real job. Right. And that's what I did. Before before we get on to the real job business, what was the lifestyle like over in Europe when you're on the you know on that pursuit of that dream? What were you uh, doing on a day to day basis? Like, was it just so with the no? So with the French team that I was writing for, we were based out of a northern suburb in Paris called Argentoy, and I was living in a studio apartment with a Polish guy. We were sharing a bunk bed. There was a second bunk bed that was in that studio apartment and there was a Portuguese guy that would come and stay with us every now and then and sometimes when riders from other parts of France needed to be with the team for an early start to go to race on the Saturday or Sunday morning, they might share that bunk bed as well. The the toilet and the kitchen and the beds were all in the same room. There wasn't enough room for a couch. There were just two seats. Um, there was just three or four local French TV channels. This was 1997, so there was no – I didn't have internet. I hand-wrote letters back home to my parents, um, and there was a really important race that I finished second in called the Trophy de Grand Prix, so the Trophy of the Climbers, and it was a significant race, and I was really happy with that result. And I got back to the apartment after that race, really excited because that was the last Sunday of the month, which was when I would get the phone call from my parents – and my mum rang me to tell me that she had breast cancer. And my only experience with breast cancer at that point had been her sister, my auntie, who passed away within about 18 months of, of getting breast cancer. Um, so that sort of, fair to say that took the polish off second place at the yeah. Trophy de Grand Prix. Yeah. Um, and then mum, you know, lived for another 10, 10 years after that or another nine years, years after that. She had a fair bit of fight in her. But it felt really isolating. The world felt a lot bigger at that point and that was still relatively early in the season and that tested how much do you really want this and I stayed in more contact with mum and dad then and mum wanted me to keep chasing that dream um, and I kept chasing that dream but I also had greater context about there are bigger things in life than just you and your selfish pursuit of a sporting dream but I have no regrets about staying there and seeing out the season and I have no regrets about calling an end to my pursuit of that dream at the end of that year because I know what the reality was. I'm not a 45-year-old that sits in front of you and says what ifs. There are no what ifs. I love it. It's a great outlook. That, that is. So you came back and you decided to get a real job. So what did you do then? <laughs> uh, I've always been fascinated with words and telling, telling stories and persuasion and particularly political persuasion. So I wanted to be a a speechwriter within politics. But I didn't, you know, but I wasn't to the left or the right. You know, I wasn't choosing the Labor Party or the Liberal Party, yeah. but I wanted to be a speechwriter. And I used to always be fascinated by the TV show Yes, Prime Minister. Right. And I think I got fascinated by that. Initially as a kid, I didn't understand the gags in that show. I'd half spent half the time laughing at my mum and dad laughing at the jokes on the telly. Yeah, yeah. But that kind of got me into it. So I wanted to become a a speechwriter. So I got into the public relations degree at Deakin University. I started university at 23 years of age. All the other kids that were there starting were 18 years of age. And I figured I'm five years behind them. I'm going to be applying for a job five years older than them. I've got to have a better story to tell. 
and I've got to have more evidence of my desire to do this job than what they've got. So from the moment that I started that degree, I started volunteering, doing work where I could in the job that I wanted. And I figured that the best thing for me to do was to try and volunteer in an area where I didn't need to learn the subject. I just needed to learn the skill. So I targeted Sport and Recreation Victoria. They became my target because I know sport really well, so I don't have to learn the subject. I can just work on the skills. So I targeted them, and then in 1999, so after 18 months at university, they were working on promotion of the soccer matches that were in association with the Olympic Games in Sydney. 13 of those games were held at the MCG. So I volunteered going to the MCG on a Friday night football match for the AFL, handing out brochures to try and get people to buy soccer tickets. That's a humbling experience. (laughs) (laughs) The Flinders Street train station, those sorts of things. Um, You know, I volunteered where I could for the job that I wanted. And eventually a position opened up. I applied for the job and it was pretty much a formality because I'd been volunteering and I'd got myself under their nose and and I got the job. And a little side story of that, which has nothing to do with uh, anything else in terms of my commentary, I got the privilege to work with one of the most impressive men I've ever come across, Peter Norman. Peter Norman is the 200-metre runner that finished second in the 200 metres in the 68 Olympics who stood on the podium in support of the Black Power movement. And, you know, then when the 2000 Olympics were held, Every African American athlete that came to Melbourne wanted to visit Peter Norman. Peter Norman, yeah. What a legend. Yeah, yeah. What what an amazing experience. So, yeah. so how long did you actually have a let's go with real job for? <laughs> About ten years. Yeah. So, uh, so I was doing that, and then in around around a bit. So that job started to nineteen ninety nine. And then in around about 2002, 2003, there was an advertisement came up to be a co-commentator for races at the velodrome in Melbourne. And I thought that would be a really cool way to stay involved in cycling because I love sharing my passion for the sport of cycling. So I figured, oh, great, I'll apply for that. So I applied for that. And I've been to a few job interviews. This was the biggest job interview I've ever had in my life, and nobody was paying me a cent. There were eight guys sitting around the table, and before me, they interviewed a guy called Robert Crow, who'd been Australian champion. He'd gone to the Olympics in '92 in Barcelona, and he was a far better bike rider than me. You know, I could barely walk in his shadow as a cyclist. And he's walked out, and I've walked in, and they've said, "Well, we've just had Robert Crow in here. He's a way better bike rider than you. What could you possibly bring to the table that you know he's not already bringing to the table?" And I thought, that's a pretty good point. Okay. Um, who's a better bike rider? Phil Anderson, who at that point was Australia's greatest ever cyclist, yeah. or Paul Sherwin? Oh, ridiculous question. Phil Anderson's one of the greatest of all time in the English-speaking world. Phil Anderson said, I agree. Who's a better commentator, Phil Anderson or Paul Sherwin? And Phil Anderson had a few guys at commentating, but Paul Sherwin's one of the great broadcasters. And the guy who was the main commentator, he said, Oh, good answer. We'll give you both a go. So we both did it, and it was the Melbourne Cup on wheels, and I just fell in love with it. And I can remember the night like it was yesterday. So it's about 18 years ago now. I can remember handicap race. Richard England won it. He had a handicap 
80 metre head start yeah. off the scratch markers. We called him um, Dick London on the night for his nickname because his name was Richard England. In the under-15s, Lee Howard dominated the under-15 races. You know, he went on to win a couple of world titles. He's a chance to win Olympic Games gold medal next year. Um, oh, it, was, it was fantastic. And I thought, yeah, okay, I like this. And then I pursued to continue doing the commentating and juggling a real job from that moment on. Who's the audience? At those, at that on that night, and at those types of events, who's listening? That, that's just venue commentary only, yep. and it's a hardcore cycling audience. And venue commentary is very different to TV commentating. So in TV commentating, you can anticipate what's happening from behind and who's about to attack. But when you're commentating in the venue at a velodrome. The guy attacking from behind wants to catch the leaders by surprise. Yeah. So you can't announce that that guy is <laughs> attacking comes. or that Collins is, is attacking him up. because you've given the race away. If you say that somebody's about to attack and it gives the race away, well, that guy that was going to attack, he's going to come and introduce himself to you after the race. That's right. He's going to attack you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's a really different scenario. And the crowd that's there is a hardcore cycling audience, which when I was just starting out was good for me. Because, you know, that was my thing. I was a hardcore cycling guy and I just wanted to talk about the racing. But after that, I've developed into I'm not – now when I commentate, I'm not the ex-bike rider. Yep. I get to commentate on the Tour de France with Robbie McEwen. He's the ex-cyclist. He's the expert. He's won 12 stages at the Tour. I'm the journalist, reporter, commentator, the host. I'm the – for. As a reference point, you know, like Bruce McAvaney is the, the is the commentator, and uh, Lee Matthews is the expert. It's that kind of scenario. Got it. Yeah. So you've called this first <laughs> event. You've gone, hey, how good is this? You've you've fallen in love with it, right? Like yeah. you've gone, this is this is for me. And over the next number of years, you've you've continued to do it. So talk us through your thought patterns around how you're going to, you know, further your commentating career and grow that to into what you're doing today? Initially, my first thought was this is a really cool way to stay involved in the sport. I'd like to commentate on the Herald Sun Tour one day because right. that's a race that I've ridden. It'd be a nice race to commentate on as well. And then I got a little bit further down the track and eventually I thought maybe I can rekindle that dream of going to the Tour de France. So as I spoke to you before about my attitude when I was at university, I took the same approach and I started volunteering for as many gigs as I could possibly get because right. I wanted to be ready for if that window of opportunity opened. So I started taking every weekend, I would drive down to Warrigal and commentate on under-15s and under-17s track races. Okay. And, you know, I can recall commentating on a 15-year-old Simon Clark racing an event down at Warrigal up against, you know, Mitch Docker and Pat Shaw and these guys that are now in their, you know, early 30s and so on. Uh, I went, I going to Lean Gather to commentate on junior races there. And I used to volunteer every Saturday morning to go and work on community radio out in the western suburbs at the back of Braybrook on what was called the Puma Sports Show. And it didn't really cover cycling. It covered AFL football and cricket and horse racing, which I have absolutely no interest in at all. Yeah. I was pretty quiet throughout the horse racing bit. 
I'm too I'm I'm too stingy to to gamble for starters. And why else would you go to the horse races? Um, and then I just volunteered for every little gig that I could get. I took every weekend to go and commentate on a bike race. So I, it was training. It was building that skill set. And then I put a pitch to SEN when that radio station started up to do a cycling and triathlon show, which we called First Off the Bike. And they gave me a time slot of 11 p.m. on a Sunday night. <laughs> wow. That's uh, harsh. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I, you know, not even my wife was listening. Like, <laughs> no. I don't know if anybody was listening. Yeah, but you know, it was but it was experience. It was runs on the board. So because I was on on SEN as you know the guy talking about cycling, then the breakfast program used me to to be the guy that they interview about the Tour de France, and then with Kevin Bartlett about the Tour de France, and then the drive program as well. So I was just accumulating more and more experience. So if that window of opportunity opened, I was ready. And then in 2007, so that was, you know, a five or so year period yeah. of that. And pretty much most events that I did, I didn't get paid for. I was volunteering. There were events that it cost me money to go to, to work on. Uh, but I just wanted to get that experience. And in 2007, that window opened up and I jumped through it as fast as I could. Fantastic. And were you married? Did you Had you met your, your wife? When did that happen? Because yeah. surely, surely, you know, she's got to be thinking, what is this guy doing? Yeah, who is this? <laughs> who is this dude? Yeah. She's, she, oh, she, seriously. So she used to say, what are you doing commentating <laughs> on these kids yeah. riding around a velodrome? I said, don't worry. Just leave it with me. <laughs> I'm having this. fun. I've got a plan. I've got a plan. <laughs> I've got, got a plan. Will you share it with me? Don't know if I can quite articulate it at the moment, but. I might be able to go back on it later on. Um, I just started commentating when we met. In fact, the second event that I commentated on was a criterium down at St Kilda at the front of the old cafe racer, and she came to that. And so she knew what she was getting into pretty early on. Right. Yeah. But, she, you know, to give you an idea of how much interest she has in cycling. Yeah. So she came to the Tour de France at the end to meet me in 2011. So she flew over to Paris. She met me the night before, and she came with me to the last day of the Tour de France when Cadell Evans is going to win. So the first Australian to win the Tour de France. And and now 10-year-old, our firstborn, is with her. She's about 18 months at that stage. And we're in the commentary box. My commentary box is part of the finishing barricade it's 50 metres to go. You cannot get a better seat <laughs> no, in the house. No. She says to me, I'm just going to go to the park at the back there and have a picnic with Kartika. <laughs> I said, you got, you, you've got to stay here and watch Kiddell ride across the finish line. And she'd met Kiddell quite a few times and, you know, because of my junior connection with him, knew him. And she's like, oh, Really? <laughs> I said, I can bring you back tomorrow and have a picnic in that park. Guarantee. I'm coming back tomorrow. We're having a picnic. I can't bring Cadell back tomorrow to ride down the Champs-Élysées <laughs> in yellow. It's a moment Sit in history. Yeah. So reluctantly, she watched Cadell win the Tour de France. <laughs> and then said, I'm off to the park. And then we went to have a picnic at the park the next day. Unbelievable. Um, yeah. So she knew what she was getting herself into, right? Yeah, she did. Yeah. yeah. So... Take us through uh, the building of this 
of your career. So you've you've done all of this. I, I what an amazing story so far. You've done you've done all of this work for for nothing just to practice your craft and your art. When did you know you've you've gone on to radio? When do you reckon your big big break took place? Uh, there was a there's a couple of breaks, but the big break was in 2007. But to get that break, I needed to do a few things first. So one of the gigs that I volunteered on was the Bay Cycling Classic, which happens at the start of every season. And it's down in Geelong and finishes in Williamstown. And when I was racing in that series, Phil Liggett started coming over as a commentator on that series. And then he was still commentating on it, and he still is to this day, because he's really good friends with the guy that organises it. And I thought it would be pretty good for me to get in front of Phil Liggett. So I, for the first two years of me working on that event, I volunteered my time and paid for my accommodation. Right. And I commentated the support races. Yeah. So there was junior races, B-grade support, I commentated on those, and then elite women and elite men, Phil commentated on those ones. And then at the end of the second year, on the last day, he said, oh, why don't you come up on the stage with me and do the elite races with me as well. And we struck up a bit of a rapport, got along pretty well, and I was really mindful of being super respectful of the guy who's the icon of the sport uh, and not stepping on his toes at all. And you know the scene in the castle when they're going to the High Court of Australia yeah. and Dennis you know, passes up, sees all the other, you know, sees shuffling notes around the part water. I was kind of... Dennis Denudo passing Phil notes on who the local writers are that he couldn't possibly know about because he never gets to see them. Yeah. You know, I was sharing my information with him. So I thought it was really important to build a good relationship with Phil, which I did. And then in addition to that, I thought, well, Paul Sherwin's going to be another guy. It's going to be pretty important to have a relationship with him. And there was no opportunity for me to work with him. So I used that radio show where I had a segment which was a retrospective where you look back on somebody's career and I thought, let's do a story looking back at the career of Paul Sherwin. So I contacted Paul, got his email address off Bill, contacted Paul, asked him if we could do an interview about his career. And, you know, as I'll attest to, based on this interview, everybody loves talking about themselves. So I got Paul on and we talked about Paul and I really did my homework to get ready for that, to try and impress him in terms of asking him fresh questions. And then at the end of the interview, he said, geez, you've done your homework. And I was really wrapped with that. That was the best feedback that I could possibly get. So I contacted him pretty regularly to get him as to preview the tour, to preview other big races and so on. And then in 2007, I've been building this relationship with those two guys. 2007, the Tour of Qatar was on in February, and so was the Tour of California. Both races wanted Phil Liggett and Paul Sherman to commentate. The Tour of Qatar that broadcast and the whole race was being organised by ASO, the company that owns the Tour de France. Phil and Paul were committed to the Tour of California. ASO say to them, okay, you guys aren't available. Who do you recommend? They'd never heard of me. They said, we recommend this guy from Australia, Matt Keenan. So I'm in my office at this point. I'm working at WorkSafe Victoria in a, you know, comms role there. And, you know, believe it or not, I'm still in the office as a public servant at about 6 o'clock in the evening. And I get this email that, oh, yeah, there was two of us there, actually, <laughs> yeah. me and the janitor. There, there and, was, and I got this email come, I got an email come through asking if I was available in two weeks' time to go to Qatar to commentate on this race. Before consulting anyone, I just wrote back, yes. <laughs> yeah. No. yeah. <laughs> yes, what do I, 
what do I need to do? That was my window that opened up. Right. So that was my audition to then be the lead, the warm-up commentator for the Tour de France that year because I'd had a different guy for the previous two or three years that they weren't happy with. They'd moved them on each year and then they were looking, you know, let's try somebody else. So I got my feet underneath that table and, and how, I, you know, locked myself to it. How'd you go in that audition? I was, the more nervous you are, the more you talk, you over talk. Yeah. And the first day I thought I was really bad. I hate to listen back to it. So I got to dinner that night and I said to the, the guys from ASO, so did you have a listen? What did you think? Oh, we had some technical problems. We didn't really get a chance to hear you. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> I was absolutely delighted. So, and then I didn't really get much feedback when I was there. I thought, well, that's not very good. And then I got home and a week later, they sent me an email and asked if I was available to come over and commentate on Paris-Nice. And then I went and commentated on Paris-Nice. And then I got home a couple of weeks after that, they sent me an email, asked if I was available for the Tour de France. And then it it started from there. When you opened that email, it said, come to the Tour de France. What did Mm. you think? Or how did I dance? Yeah. How, how is your dancing in Billy? <laughs> oh, I'm still, you know, when you, however you dance when you're about 14, yeah. you're stuck with that dancing style for the rest of your life, no matter what the song is. That is true. And I was doing my best Billy Jean. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That must have been a moment where you're going, wow. Yeah. All of the, all, I've paid my dues for this and here we yeah. go. It was huge. And it, it, there was a brief moment where I thought, wow, well, I've, I've made it but I hadn't I hadn't achieved what I wanted to achieve and so I went to the tour that year and it was a, it was a, actually a pretty tough experience because it's huge when you're the other voice before Phil and Paul they're commentating entertaining parts you're doing the boring part you're on your own and they're a duo that have been together for so long and have got such great chemistry together and you know you're commentating the part where there's a two rider breakaway at a six minute advantage and there's nothing happening yeah. And you got nobody to bounce off. Yeah. And you're being compared to their commentary of the sprint finish. So it's, you know, not not the easiest position to be in. It, that was a point where I didn't feel like that other dream had been achieved. So I was still in it for the long haul and I wanted to keep on on pressing on. And it wasn't until 10 years later, until 2017, when I commentated for the first time a stage finish at the Tour de France, that I felt like I'd achieved something the 15-year-old me would have been really proud of. Um, that, yeah, yeah, it was not until then because I was still very much the understudy. Ten years have been the understudy. And from you know, 2007, 8 and 9, I was still working in a normal job and taking leave without pay to go and commentate on the Tour de France. And then my daughter was born February the 13th, 2010, and then on about March the... Third, I jumped on a plane and flew to France for two weeks to commentate on Paris-Nice. Um, and my wife had had emergency cesarean, so she couldn't lift anything, you know, heavy for six weeks or drive for six weeks. Then I got home at 11.30 on a Tuesday night and walked out the door at 7.30 Wednesday morning to go to the office. I mean, that went down real well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I got home from work that night and, you know, we had the conversation, this can't continue. It's one or the other. And my nickname for her is Sherpa because Tenzing wasn't, you know, Tenzing was the guy that got to the top of Everest, really. Yeah. 
Uh, he, he carried Hillary to the top of Everest, and she's my Sherpa. Yeah. I couldn't have done it without her support. She said, I'll support you in whatever you choose to do, but it's got to be one or the other. I said, okay, well, this is where we're at financially. We're in a position where we can give this a go for at least 12 months. Let's map out a plan. Tomorrow I'll go in and resign, and then we write a business plan and we see if we can make this happen. So the next day I went into work and I resigned, came came home, we wrote a business plan, and here I am 10 years later still somehow getting away with it. Did, did you, well, you're more than getting away with it. You're, uh, did you ever have any doubt? Like did, did or you, you, it feels like to me that you always felt like you were destined to do it. It's what you were meant to do. Yeah, but I always had doubt. Right. You always have self-doubt. So I'm always anticipating. And self-doubt's good because self-doubt drives you to be better as mm. well. Mm. If you get too comfortable, and it's the same as I remember, you know, my dad, when I was going to little athletics or basketball or football or tennis as a kid and telling dad I was nervous, that I had butterflies in my stomach. And his response was always, good. It means you care. It means it matters. Yeah. And I've always got that little bit of self-doubt. I'm nervous before every public function that I do, whether it's 30 people in the room or it's 3,000 at a big dinner or awards evening. It doesn't make any difference whether it is still the Bay Cycling Classic where I was volunteering, you know, all those years ago or it's the start of the Tour de France. You've still got that nervous energy and that's a good thing. And the best way to deal with self-doubt and to deal with nervous energy is do your homework. It's to prepare so it turns that nervous energy into a positive nervous energy as opposed to a debilitating one. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's always still that little bit of self-doubt. And it's a really fragile industry. There aren't too many jobs as an English-speaking commentator in cycling. How many is there? Two? <laughs> yeah, it's about that. <laughs> On free-to-air television, there's two. So you just talked yeah. about the self-doubt of the the actual commentary or, or presenting uh, in real time. What about that period of time where you, you sort of landed the, the understudy role and you had no idea that it was going to be 10 years, five years, another 50 years? Um, what do you go through? I imagine the first few years, it's this is just exciting. I'm keen to be part of it. Is there a point in time when it starts to turn and go, am I going to be doing this for you know, as far out as I can see? Or did you have an idea in your mind that you might get an opportunity after about 10 years, how did you keep that that belief up? I was always going to play the patient game. I was never going to try and push it. And I never actually asked for the job to be the guy that commentates the Tour de France. I got offered that position initially to be the warm-up guy for Phil and Paul. And then in terms of filling those shoes with Phil and Paul, it was something that just evolved over time. And it happened as a result of the way Phil and Paul have worked with NBC. And Phil still works with, with NBC to this day, so he still commentates at the Tour de France. And with NBC, with that American broadcast, they've got so many packages that they go to, interviews that they've done with riders from the day before or in the morning, um, commercials that they go to, special promotions that they've got going. You know the way American television works. Whereas with ASO, with the World Feed, it's just consistent commentary because there's 40-odd networks around the world and they're going to ad breaks at different times, so you can't stop commentating. And it was becoming too difficult for, for those guys to juggle their commitments in the US and their commitments to the world feed. So the ASO wanted clean commentary for what was the world feed. 
But I certainly didn't want to push in and try and, and take that job. A, out of respect for those guys, and B, I thought the longer the audience had to get used to me, the better that was going to be for me in the long term as well. And if you rush into a position that you're not ready for, you might lose that position. Whereas if you're a little bit more patient and get yourself ready for the spot, you might be able to hold on to it permanently. And you know, I've been in that spot now for a few years and I've still got a few years to run on my current contract and you're going to have to wrestle me for it because I don't <laughs> want to let go. Yeah. Well, look, what an amazing career you've had today. Tell me, there was a we were speaking a little earlier. There was a moment um, when you were calling a particular race at a particular event uh, that was particularly close, and you were you're that into your commentating. You found yourself on the floor. Take us through that. I've only crashed once in commentary, and it's all Anamirs' fault. Is that so right? this was in 2006. <laughs> yeah, this was 2006, and this was a this was a big break for me. So this was doing the world feed for the Commonwealth Games that were in Melbourne. And I was commentating these with Anna Wilson, who was one of our great road cyclists of the late 90s, early 2000s. And we were commentating at the velodrome in Melbourne. And Mears versus Pendleton is one of the greatest rivalries cycling, particularly track cycling, has had for the last few decades. And I've watched Anna from the period where she first beat her older sister and going up through national championships and so on. Richie Benno always said there shouldn't be, there's no team called us or them when you're commentating. That day there might have been an us. <laughs> I was slightly biased, even though I was meant to be doing the neutral world feed. So it was coming down to the final sprint. They've hit the finishing straight. Pendleton and Mears are shoulder to shoulder. And as they've thrown to the line, I've thrown to the line with them. And the seat that I was on was one of those office seats that's on four wheels. They've thrown, I've thrown, I've slipped off the seat. It's gone flying out behind me. I've landed on my backside, looked up to the monitor, Pendleton, she gets it. <laughs> and Anna Wilson's looking at me. You know, she's a studious barrister, yeah. you know, really professional, brilliant athlete, good at everything she does, looks at me. I could see the look in her eyes just thinking, you're nuts. <laughs> but, you know, Pendleton won by a whisker and I was in the moment. You lo- When you're commentating... You know where people tell you you need to live in the moment? Yeah. When you're commentating, you're not checking social media or looking at your emails or worrying about who you need to call back later on that day. You are in the moment. You couldn't be anything else but in the moment, could you? Like the, I would imagine you hark back to those days when you were calling the hours and hours of, you said boring, um, pieces <laughs> of the of the ride. Like you'd have to be so focused in order to mm. actually make that sound vaguely interesting or, and add, the best or preparation. Add, value, add value to the pitches, as you say. Yeah, and the best preparation be on a B grade under 15 race. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Try, you know, when you commentate on a B grade under 15 track race, uh, you know, it's not moving super quick and there's no history to talk about. And the audience is that athlete's mum and dad. And if you've been to junior sport lately, yeah. mum and dad can get a little vicious every now and then. And if you make a mistake, they give you some pretty quick feedback. So that was that was that thing that I was talking about, about doing the preparation to be ready for when the window opened up. And you've got to try and find something half interesting to talk about. But I'll tell you one of the biggest challenges that I've had. It was a stage 
to Vitell in 2017, the first year Robbie and I were calling stage finishes. The last five kilometres were fantastic. It was the day Arno DeMar won, Mark Cavendish crashed, and Peter Sagan got kicked off the tour. Dramatic day. But for 210 kilometres, there was a breakaway with one rider. Guillaume yeah. Van Key's book. Now, Robbie and I had done our homework, and Robbie actually knows Key's book and his family well. He had his parents in the car with him at the Tour Down Under earlier that year. Yeah. So we had information on Guillaume Van Key's book, but not 210 Ks worth. So how long is 210 Ks to talk about this guy? It was a, about five and a half hours, six <laughs> hours. <laughs> so for five and a half hours you're talking about- Wow. What, what, are you, what are you saying? Do you have to get on Google to start researching the <laughs> origins of his name? And Yeah. Well, luckily his grandfather won the world title back in the early 60s. So we spoke about his granddad and the generation his granddad rode in. There were lots of, you know, the Eglise de Saint-Martins that day and the Chateau Farazo. We got into the churches and, you know, the area that we went to and the role that this region played in the Second World War. Wikipedia got a workout that day. <laughs> Hey, you mentioned, um, like I think about all of the sacrifices you've had to make in order to make your dream come true. You're away, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, five or six months of the year. Like, as a family, what what sort of a, a sacrifice has your wife and the family had to make in order for you to do what you do? A huge sacrifice. One of my favourite pictures is I've got a picture of my son about three years ago mm. when I was packing to go to France in March and he jumped in my suitcase. He oh. probably wouldn't fit in it now at eight years of age, but it's a yeah. gorgeous picture. Yeah. And I've updated my phone since, but that picture's come across with me. Yeah. And I look at it regularly. It's fantastic. So that's the absolutely is the downside. But I figure that I probably spend more time with my wife and kids than most people do, probably more than you guys do. If I go back to when I had a normal job, I would have been leaving home and getting home at 6.30, 7 o'clock, maybe later. And as a result of that, you're you know, it's functional that time of day. You're doing breakfast, you're doing dinner, you're going. Now when I go away, sure, I'm, I'm away for big chunks, up to six weeks at a time. And FaceTime is fantastic. Thank heavens for FaceTime. Yeah. But once I'm home, I'm home. I'm doing the school drop-off. I'm doing the school pick-up. I'm taking my daughter to swimming before school, to tennis lessons. I'm taking my son to football. Um, you know, I'm doing a lot of the most other dads wouldn't get the opportunity to do. So I really do try and make up for it. So yeah, there's, there's pros and cons to every job. And even though this is the dream job, every job has an element of grind. Every job, you've got to send out invoices and do admin. You've, there's that element to every single job, no matter how good it is, yep. in, including my job. But guess what? You know, I get to send an invoice every now and then from Elk to Wes. <laughs> Not a bad place to send an invoice. Uh, so our world has changed. It has just changed immeasurably since, you know, March of this year. So like, the, the latest update that I saw is that the Tour de France has been postponed until the 29th of August. Mm. What, what is, what's that mean for you? What happens next? It means I'm not going to the Tour okay. de France yep. for the first time since 2007, which was a hard, hard decision to come to. We could have gone through the process of applying for the exemption to be able to travel, um, you know, 
based on whatever whatever grounds, but essentially for me to earn an income. But there was also opportunity to stay in Australia and just work for SBS and commentate for SBS. The challenge is I, I don't go to the Tour de France. I open up an opportunity for somebody else to do that world fee. Mm. So that's a massive risk. But by the same token, you talk, everybody talks about, you know, COVID and, you know, it's, how serious or serious it isn't. My father, who's 83 years of age, is still really healthy, but earlier on this year he had open-heart surgery because his pericardium had, had gone hard. So if I go and do the Tour de France and, you know, through my travels, through transit or whatever it is, I pick up COVID and I'm asymptomatic because I'm young and healthy and so on, I live two k's from my dad and I do most of his grocery shopping at the moment and I pass it on to him, I don't want to pass it on to my dad. No. I don't want to live with that. Yeah. I don't want to pass it on to anybody, yeah. but I particularly don't want to pass it on to dad because yeah. he brought me that an- he bought me that antenna in 1990. <laughs> That's exactly right. He started. Lucky this. he brought. <laughs> if he didn't buy the antenna, I might be going. Yeah. Um, so you know, both Robbie and I made the decision not that long ago, and it was long time coming to that decision that we're going to stay in Australia and we'll do the commentary for SBS. Whether I do that from Sydney or do that from Melbourne, we're still in the process of working through the logistics. What will be challenging is if I'm in Melbourne and Robbie's on the Gold Coast and we're trying to commentate the tour. Yeah. What it will be is a unique experience. So I'm trying to embrace that element of it. And I'm you know, just grateful that I'll still have an opportunity to sit in front of a TV and talk about bike racing. Love it. Or it just be like this. Um, we're actually probably two Ks from each other. But um, yeah, can't be face exactly. to face. <laughs> yeah, well, so yeah, but yeah, exactly. So yeah, we're in almost we're effectively in neighbouring suburbs. But whether we're in neighbouring suburbs or at the other end of the country, what's the difference? Yeah. If we've got the technology to stay socially distanced and isolated and, and reduce any risk, let's go for it. Yeah. So you've had a great ride so far. When you think about the next stage, yeah, what does that bring? Is there a couple oh, of massive keep, hills or uh, is it is yeah, – no, I, lo- I want to keep riding, yeah. but I want to go a little quicker. Okay. There's always room for – I want to get better. There's yeah. always room for improvement. Yeah. And some of the elements of getting better, I think I'm really good in terms of the information that I can gather and deliver. The key to being a better commentator is being more entertaining. It's the delivery. And it's the confidence of when to be silent. I love having the confidence now of when the race is going across the cobblestones – having the confidence to be quiet and you can hear the rattling of the bike going across the cobblestones or when they're going around Dutch corner on Alpe d'Huez being confident enough to shut up and know that the audience is more entertaining than me talking at that point. So developing those elements and my wife, you know, as I mentioned before, she's got no interest in cycling. She gives really good feedback on your commentary. She tells (laughs) you if that was boring or not. And her big thing is light and shade. And you could, you should be able to measure whether the lead commentator in particular, more so than the guy or the girl, the woman who's the expert, the ex-athlete, even if you don't understand the, the language, if you're listening to Danish television or Spanish television or, or whatever it might be, and you don't understand that language, you should be able to work out by the cicada of somebody's voice whether they're a good entertaining commentator or not. And that's the area where I'm really working on. Well, mate, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I've got one. We've got one more question for you. If um, Nick was your fairy godmother and could transport you into any commentary box uh, at any point in time, 
in the history of sport and you could commentate on that moment in time, where would you go? 1936 Olympic Games, Jesse Owen winning the 100 metres in front of Hitler. What a great call. Amazing. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? <laughs> that, that would be awesome. Hey, Matt Kenneth, thank you so much for joining us on the Doolanders. What an amazing story. Uh, you've absolutely inspired us with uh, a dream that you forged as a just a young lad. And uh, I think the discipline and the work ethic and the belief in who you are and what you do um, has been part of that journey. And your wife just helping you along the way yeah. is, is another amazing part of that journey. So thank you so much for joining us on the Doolanders. Thanks, guys. I've really enjoyed it. And my motto is there's more than one way to skin a cat. Keep chasing the dream. Follow your passions. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, guys. I just love that story, the way that he's created his own path to the Tour de France. Just absolutely amazing. Yeah, and he talked about right at the end um, the many ways to skin a cat. Yeah. And what he meant by that was um, he he knew he couldn't win the Tour. He probably he knew he couldn't compete at the yeah. Tour. Um, and so he was honest with himself and he didn't push himself to the point of, you know, ruining himself financially or ruining his relationships and those sorts of things. And he thought about, well, how else can I be involved in that event and in cycling? And the blueprint that he laid out is is quite incredible. When he volunteered at kids' races, weekend after weekend, calling to parents, that was basically the audience, um, honing his craft over a long period of time and positioning himself so that he was always in the presence of Phil Liggett when he was around. Yeah, built those relationships built relationships, didn't push it, didn't just say, hey, I'm a 20-something-year-old, I should be the voice of cycling straight away. And then getting the understudy role for 10 years. 10 years. like uh, Clearly he loves it and it's so passionate about it, but 10 years is the understudy. Yeah. and But his rationale for that is Phil Liggett, Paul Sherwin, obviously well-known voices for many decades before he came on the scene. So having a long understudy uh, role let the audience get used to him and whoever his offsider was, and now it's, it's very clearly Robbie McEwen, so that when the time did come for him to take over, it wasn't just a bolt out of the blue, oh, who, who's this person I'm now hearing? Oh, it's Matt Keenan. He's actually going to call all the way through to the end. And there's all these little subtleties in the, the, the skills that he brings to his craft um, that, is, uh, that he's really thought about. And the great message out there for everyone who says, I want it now, I want to be number one straight away, is it just does not happen like that. There is no such thing as an overnight success. And Matt's story is one of perseverance, determination uh, and honesty with himself. It sure is. And it's such, a, such an inspiring story. But one of the things that I guess one of my major takeaways was that when he was holding up the – binoculars to the that race at the very beginning of the the podcast clearly his binoculars were a little smudged and he didn't actually see what happened at that photo finish um i'm just going to read calling for a steward's inquiry i i want a steward's inquiry i cannot believe 
given the volume of drag coming off the hair on your legs at this stage that you could have actually pipped me. I think maybe we'll have to put in the uh, show notes, whatever they are. We'll work that out. Yeah. We'll do a quad comparison and the the listeners can determine for themselves (laughs) who they think would win in a bike race. Yeah. Look, uh, if you've ever seen any of those uh, 400-year-old redwoods that um, have blossomed in the forests of wherever redwoods forests are, (laughs) California. Uh, California, that's it. They're your thighs. Yep. Unbelievable. You are built to be a cyclist, aren't you? I think I was. Have, like when You're on Zwift and you're up against oh, I did. I did. Yes, occasionally uh, I, I will see Matt Cannon on Zwift. Yep. How do you go? Zwift's past me. Does he Zwift past you? Oh, even yeah. Even with those thighs? Oh, yeah. So he was genetically challenged. Uh, like, well, yeah, I wouldn't... <laughs> Well, top ten, top ten Australian. No, that's not genetically challenged. Yes, you're right. No, I think um, I think we might have talked about this as in the in the pre-record with with Matt. Um, you know, and I suggested maybe it's a one percent difference in genetics, and he yep. said, "Oh, it's probably more like ten percent." Yeah, it's probably somewhere in that one to ten percent range of where Matt was, which I imagine we're talking the very tip of the pyramid here mm. in terms of um, skill. Mm. Uh, but he described um, a time when he. Because he was he's about the same vintage as Cadell Evans, I think rode in the same club, and he described an event where they uh, not an event, just a, a casual ride where they went out to King Lake. Matt's putting in everything into this ride, yeah. going up a hill, and um, Cadell's basically not not drawing on a cigarette, but kind of giving that sort of impression of like, yeah, he's doing it easy. <laughs> when are we uh, sipping on a cup of latte or something as he's going up the hill? So there is that component of it, yep, um, but clearly. Those like a Cadell or whatever still put in enormous, enormous amounts of effort to make it work. Well, there it was, Matt Keenan. Great story of passion, uh, perseverance, and patience, and he got there in the end. Yep. Doolanders, uh, I hope you enjoyed that one. Look forward to jumping into your ears. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that's a saying, but you can go with it from now on. Over and out. <laughs> Bye. They're charging across the Place de la Concorde. It's Devitus who is on the front. He's all rage and ambition. He can see the finish line up on the Champs-Élysées. The Arc de Triomphe is in the distance. Collins sits the wheel, waits patiently. He's got experience. He's holding. Devitas goes. He's gone early. Collins is coming. It's a photo. Devitas, Collins, it's a photo. Devitus takes the win. He's let out from the corner. He's held on and Collins hangs his head in shame after sitting on for the last kilometre and not pulling his weight at all.